Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, and I'm reading today from a book entitled The Christian in Complete Armor. It's volume two of a three-volume set by William Gurnall. He was the English Bible scholar and pastor. He died in 1679. We're going to talk today about the hypocrite's false profession, all of this having to do with that fifth consideration, the Christian's spiritual girdle. Number one, the hypocrite insists he cannot endure hypocrisy unless you show proof from holy ground. This is not enough to clear you from being a hypocrite yourself. It is natural for a man to condemn a sin in another person while he harbors the same sin in his own life. How severe was Judah's judgment against Tamar? He was in such a hurry to have her burned that everyone assumed he was speaking as a man of chastity, yet he was the very one who had defiled her. Some men's enthusiasm is kindled against another's sin when it reflects disgrace upon them in the eyes of the world. This is especially true when the wrong is a public one and the person who committed it is a relative. Judah, for instance, was willing for his daughter to be taken out of the way so the blot which she had brought on his family might go with her and remain out of his sight. Others severely judge faults in order to hide their own flaws, thus enabling them to carry on selfish designs with less suspicion. Absalom, for example, criticized his father's government as a, as a stirrup to help himself into the saddle. And Jehu loved the crown more than he hated Jezebel's whoredoms, even though he swung a keen sword against them. False zeal thus becomes revenge and shoots at the person rather than at his sin. Hypocrites can hate the tyrant while admiring his tyranny. Number two, the hypocrite boasts of being unafraid. The better way is to test a person's boldness by his sincerity and not sincerity by boldness. True confidence and a spirit undaunted at death and danger are glorious when the spirit and word of Christ stand by to fulfill them. And certainly it is good when a person can give some account of the hope that is in him as Paul did when he showed people the source of it operating in his life. This was Christian courage. Uh, not Roman fearlessness. But the Christian must pass many rooms before arriving at this place of assurance, which adjoins heaven itself. Faith is the key which lets him enter into all these rooms. First, it opens the door of justification, takes him into peace and reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1. Through justification, the seeker passes on to another room, the chamber of God's favor, and is welcomed into his presence. By whom also, Romans 5, now verse 2, we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. Not only have we been pardoned from sin and reconciled by God, by faith, in Christ, but now we are brought into the royal court under Christ's wing as favorites of the prince. 
We not only enjoy God's grace and favor and, and communion now, but move on and open the door to a third room, a hope firmly planted in our hearts for heaven's glory later, rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. Finally, God brings the Christian to the innermost room, which no one can come to unless he has passed through all the other ones first. Verse 3, it says, And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also. If you have not entered at these doors, you're a thief and a robber. You've taken up confidence which God's hand has not given. If God is bringing you to heaven, he will nonetheless chastise you for this sort of boldness, as he did when Jacob stole his father's blessing. So do not be satisfied with bare boldness and a confidence in times of danger, but find out whether it has a scriptural foundation to stand on. Otherwise, the pillars supporting it might be ignorance in your mind and, and stupidity in your conscience. If your conscience is dull, your boldness will not last any longer than a drunk man's bravery. And when he is wound up and wine sprung, he is sure that he could jump over the moon and ventures out without fear among precipices and pitfalls. But when he is sober, he trembles to see what he did in his drunken stupor. Nabal, for one, did not fear anything when he was drunk, but his heart became like a stone at the story Abigail told him in the morning when the wine was out of him. Number three, the hypocrite reveals his secret devotions. The trademark of a hypocrite is that he is a, a nobody except on stage. He courts the world for applause and will do anything to have it. While it is true that total neglect of closeted devotions marks a person as a hypocrite, the keeping of such quiet times never demonstrates your sincerity. In this sphere, hypocrisy is like the frogs brought on Egypt. No place was free of them, and not even the bedrooms. They crept into the most private rooms as well as in the front yard. Even though the place of meditation might be secret, some hypocrites handle the matter in such a way that, that all the world knows. A hen may retreat to a quiet corner to lay her egg, but her cackling tells the whole house exactly where she is and what she's doing. In all the arts, some exceed others in skill. There are apprentices and there are masters. Well, this is just as true in hypocrisy, the gross hypocrite who intends to deceive others lives in a religious environment without doors. But the hypocrite who fights to keep conscience on his side will go to the utmost link of his chain. He will do anything that will not separate him and his beloved lusts. And for insurance, he may even devise a prayer life to protect his sins. It is not the sharpness of the sword which kills but the force with which it is plunged in. Thus the hypocrite can lay his sword so gently against sin in his own heart that it never feels a thing. Number four, the hypocrite declares war on sin. You may not hesitate to display various trophies of your spiritual warfare. Oh, there was a time when I could not go by the nightclub without being 
pulled inside by my own lust. But thank God, now I have conquered that sin, and I do not even give those places a passing glance. But the Holy Spirit comes to contest such a victory with several questions. First, how long have you mastered your lust? Let me remind you, some lusts do not return as fast as others. The river does not always move in just one manner. Sometimes its level rises and sometimes it falls. And although it does not ever rise when it falls, it has not lost its forward motion. Now the the tide of lust is sometimes up and sometimes down. The man may seem to run successfully from it, but it can return to him around the bend of the meandering stream of sin. Who would have thought Pharaoh could be caught in another mad fit after his good mood had agreed to let Moses and his people go? Yet this is what happens when a crisis or temptation comes to our port like an easterly wind and brings in the tide of lust to break upon us. Our souls can be as clear of lust as the bare sands are of water, but in just a few moments, we can be covered by deep, crashing waves. The longer the banks have held, the better, of course, but even if you never again outwardly fulfilled your lust, would this be enough to clear you of hypocrisy? The question is, why are you trying to stay free of these sins? What is your motive The thing which keeps you from the tavern now may be worse than the lust that drew you there in the first place. The money you save by not guzzling colorful cocktails, are you now spending it on finery that only feeds your pride? You've only robbed one lust to sacrifice it to another. Was it God or man, God or your pride, or or God or your reputation, which motivated you to change? If anything but God prevailed with you, hypocrite is the name that fits you more than it did when you were a drunkard. Maybe you have laid down this sin. Well, good. But why? Did you hate it and love God? Or does the wrath of God make you too afraid to continue in it? You've put down evil, but have you taken up good? Only a foolish farmer plows his ground but never plants. It is not the field clear of weeds, but fruitful in grain, which pays your rent and brings gain. So then it is not non-drunkenness or non-uncleanness, but rather holiness and pure love and unfeigned faith, which prove you sound and bring evidence of Christ-likeness for heaven. Oh, amen. Amen. The next section will be called uh, Characteristics of Sincerity. Characteristics of Sincerity. Thank you for listening. Again, I want to say that I do enjoy hearing from you. Please contact me with questions and comments at bob.j.falconer.72 at gmail.com. Look around our site. I, I believe you're going to find some things that will be beneficial There are readings uh, from other great men of God. There are stories from the persecuted church, Bible studies, and a lot more. This is the Hackberry House of Chosun. Lord willing, we'll talk again real soon. Bye-bye.